Hello, welcome to Thoughtbox. My name is Shreyas, and today we have Professor Ben Zweig, who is currently an adjunct professor at NYU and the CEO of Revelio Labs, which uses AI technology to revolutionize HR. He previously worked as a data scientist at IBM and holds a PhD in economics from the SUNY Graduate Center. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's just jump right into it. Four million people quit their job this past month, and people are calling it the great resignation. What is going on with our labor markets? Yeah, really tough question. So I think, I think the first thing to, to note is COVID, of course. So at first, you know, when COVID hit, lots of people filed for unemployment. It's the biggest spike in unemployment filings we've ever seen. And, and lots of people are out of work. We've since recovered from that, but still labor force participation has been not quite what it was pre-pandemic. So there are a lot of reasons for that. I think the one that I find most um, most compelling is that childcare has has become much more much more difficult in pandemic times. Schools could could close on a dime. Um, you know, you'll have to sort of parents will, will have to just stay home from work. So a lot of a lot of uh, parents who are primary caregivers um, just haven't returned to the labor force because it's just not practical when um, when you when you have to take care of kids and and uh, you know childcare is unreliable. So so I think labor supply is not recovered to the extent that we might expect, and also demand is just going crazy. So we've got a very hot labor market and a very hot economy in general. There's been lots of stimulus. Um, you know, we've clearly seen inflation. Um, so the economy has been stimulated probably a bit too much, and that's resulted in a lot of demand for workers and not so much supply. So I think for the first time that I've seen, a worker power has increased dramatically. So now it's very much an employee's market. Um, you know, qualified employees, even unqualified employees, um, have much better job prospects, and that's resulted in them looking for the best fit, trying to find the job that that satisfies their, you know, their their needs, their wants, and um, and so we've seen a lot of focus on on things that haven't gotten much focus before. Like, for example, I, I had a piece that came out in the Soul Management Review about toxic work, uh, toxic work culture being a driver of great resignation. Now, of course, that's not the primary driver. The primary driver is labor shortages, but it's approximate driver in that it's what people start caring about. And when workers have a lot of power, they bring, they bring, to, they bring our attention to topics that they care about, like not having toxic work culture, like higher pay, like uh, like flexible work hours and flexible work arrangements, um, so you know we've seen a sort of rebalancing of of labor market power. Another thing I'll mention is that it's not just like a supply demand mismatch. There's also just the labor market just looks different, and you know now um, people are hiring uh, in remote locations. There's hybrid work. So companies have had to adapt to new work arrangements, and employees had to think what they want, of what they want, where they want to live, what kind of jobs they want to have. And there's just a general reshuffling that's going on um, just because the economy is adapting so quickly. So what's different about this recovery 
than previous recoveries in the past? Like, why is it that employers now have more bargaining, or sorry, workers have more bargaining power today than you know after the 08 crisis or in the 1990s after that recession? For one, it's worth noting that previous recessions weren't really labor supply shocks. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the 08, 09 recession was was a demand shock, and most recessions are demand shocks. Right. And and the the pandemic recession was very much a supply shock. So so it kind of um, brought society's attention to labor markets in a, in a pretty dramatic way. And, and then as a result, I mean, I think, I don't know, I don't, I don't have a great answer for like why the recovery of, uh, of labor markets was so strong. I think probably just a combination of, you know, heavy stimulus and a little bit of resistance to coming back to work. Mm-hmm. Is... So I saw this really interesting thing that Walmart is now paying their truck drivers $110,000, which is how much junior investment bankers get paid at a college. And I just thought that's so interesting. And this is after like months of truck drivers quitting their jobs because they're saying they hated it. But also on the, on the other hand, I feel like in a couple years from now, we're going to have automated truck driving. So how long is this bargaining power going to last? Yeah, I saw that article also. I thought it was funny because, you know, for a while, investment banking was known as a skilled profession and driving right. was known as unskilled. But I, I heard this joke. What's the difference between a junior investment banker and a truck driver? What? Uh, in terms of skills. <laughs> what? A uh, truck driver can drive. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, I think I think for one, there's, yeah, I mean, that's going to go over terribly in the stern audience. But um, for one, truck driving, I think there's a bit of a misnomer in terms of, like, the lack of skills, like it's a very intense mm-hmm. profession. Um, there's some stat that I, I'm, I don't remember exactly right now, but that truck drivers don't, you know, they're, they're the length of their career is very short. Mm-hmm. It's almost like being an athlete. Like you have to be, you have to have a lot of attention. Um, like you really can't do that when you get much older. Like you have to sort of be in the prime of your, of your like physical career to be a truck driver. So. It's it's a really intense job, so maybe maybe there's there's part of it that's that example, but in general, I mean, I don't know. You know, the the labor market's hot everywhere, um, so you know, banker salaries are also going up quite a lot, and uh, and yeah, they're they're kind of going up everywhere. Um, yeah, but then getting to this point about like automation, like is there really like, should people not be selecting into into driving because because they might be automated away? Mm-hmm. That's a really tricky question. Um, so let's say you believe that that workers are are elastic to automation threats that that they actually do respond to prospects for automation then you would see fewer people want to become truck drivers, and that would actually cause salaries to be even higher. Mm-hmm. So maybe the high salaries are the result of people you know, not wanting to you know, make a career out of truck driving because they don't see good prospects. So going back to automation, do you think the threat of automation, it gets discussed a lot, and I think politics and people will go to um, rural areas and talk about how automation took away all those jobs. If they're not saying, you know, China took him, they're saying automation took him. Do you think the threat of automation to the labor force is overhyped or underhyped or properly hyped? Good question. I think it's overhyped. Interesting. So, 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say before before saying mm-hmm. why I think it's overhyped, it's not clear that automation will affect, you know, rural workers, unskilled workers. Um, like right now, you know, AI and machine learning are are doing what generally smart, skilled working professionals would do. You know, they're they're doing things like prediction and diagnostics, and these were were traditionally the purview of the knowledge worker not the not the wage worker so i think it's possible that the ones who get automated are the 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 privileged workers mm-hmm. knowledge workers which is not something we've seen in the past but could be something we see in the future um but why do i think why do we think the threat of automation is overhyped so I think, I think just to clarify what the threat of automation is, I'm really talking about the threat of technological unemployment, mm-hmm. of, you know, people being, of workers getting displaced by technology. Now, there's threats of you know, AI becoming rogue and taking over the world and all <laughs> right. that. And like, I, I don't really have a strong opinion about that. But in terms of technological unemployment, I think, I think there's been a, a, um, a laziness in how this gets analyzed. And I think, I think the... And, and, I think certainly in popular professions, like you know, McKinsey reports saying that you know fifty percent of workers will be displaced by you know technology. Like yeah. that's obviously ridiculous. Right. But even labor economists, I think, have been a little lazy about this. And I think the, the the key issue in my mind is the concept of a job being the unit of analysis. Mm-hmm. So you know, will a certain occupation be automated? That's a really tricky question. Because occupations are not fixed things, so they transform. You know what what it means to be in sales or customer service today is very different than what it meant to be in those professions a generation ago. So when we think about technology's effect on labor markets, they don't automate jobs. Jobs don't get automated. Tasks and activities get automated, and a job is made up of a bundle of tasks and activities. And then maybe a series of those get automated, but you know, then new ones get introduced. So let's let's imagine a job has ten activities that it does, and three of those activities get automated. They're still left with seven things. Mm-hmm. So they still got plenty to do, and maybe just to specialize in those tasks. But then you know, someone will discover a new thing. You know, an eleventh item, um, or a twelfth or thirteenth, and and then at some point. You know, the job becomes unrecognizable from what it used to be. And I, I, I did some research on this a little while ago, uh, trying to decompose how much of um, the change in, in the labor market um, is attributable to transformation within occupations and between occupations. I found it was like roughly 60-40. So 60% of labor market transformation happens within an occupation. So people just do different things. And if we imagine a world where only the only transformation in labor markets is within occupation, that's a world with zero technological unemployment. So, it, so people just do different things, and that's fine. So it, their activities change, but they're still, they're still fully employed. So that's, that's one, that's one uh, side of this, a reason why I think it's overhyped. Another side of it is this question about how responsive are labor markets. So on the supply side, do do workers pay attention to risks of automation? You know, 
maybe a little bit. Like, there's some responsiveness. I don't think anyone is planning to become an elevator operator these days. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, lots of people are selecting into jobs that involve blockchain and, like, new, you know, hot new things. Mm -hmm. So I think there is some responsiveness of labor markets to uh, prospects for automation. Then the question is, is, is the demand for work really responsive to this? And do firms actually hire fewer people if, if those jobs can be automated? I think we'd be tempted to think, well, of course they do. They're profit maximizing. And, you know, if something could be automated, just, uh, you know, just hire a machine instead of a worker. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's actually how things work. I think a lot of companies are very, very slow to adapt. There's this adage um, in, in academia that science progresses one funeral at a time. And, you know, it's a little depressing, but I think that's really true. I think for a lot of companies to change their practices, it's just going to be a long, hard slog to incorporate technology. They, they have so many processes in place that make technological integration very, very difficult. So I think, I think firms don't fully adopt technology when it's first made available. You know, there's another expression that uh, uh, the future is already here; it's just not normally distributed. Mm. And that's that's also quite true. You know, th there are these like superstar firms that are using all the latest, greatest technologies, but then these really slow behemoths that are very slow to adapt. And you know. I'm sure everyone at Stern has heard about the uh, innovator's dilemma. That you know, it's very it's very difficult for an incumbent to adopt new technologies, which is a little depressing in terms of productivity. We'd like to think that firms can adopt and, and become more productive, but it should be a little comforting that they won't just like snap of their fingers uh, adopt new technologies, which will put people out of work. It's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. So just to push back on that for the sake of argument, what about automation that changes the behavior of consumers uh, that then renders certain industries obsolete? For example, what Uber did with drivers that resulted in cab drivers protesting because people aren't using their services anymore, or the fact that we have an unprecedented amount of shopping malls closing than ever before because, and especially through COVID, people are relying more and more on you know, DoorDash rather than going to the food court or obviously Amazon rather than going and buying clothes in person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are great examples, but I think they're examples that underscore this point. Mm -hmm. You know, Uber didn't decrease the number of drivers in the world. It increased it. Interesting. Um, DoorDash probably increased the number of delivery people. So, you know, a lot of these technologies have succeeded by introducing something new not to the substitute, not to really substitute other things so much. Um, I mean, they haven't really substituted workers. I guess you could make a case that, you know, Uber has displaced taxi drivers. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to pretend there's no like winners and losers here. Of mm -hmm. course, like there, you know, with any disruption, there's going to be some some losers, but. Probably not in the sense that creates mass unemployment. I don't think we've mm -hmm. really seen any very good examples of that throughout mm -hmm. history. So shifting gears a bit, um, technology obviously progressing so much over the last 50, 60 years that jobs and li lifestyles are so unrecognizable. 
And back when Keynes was writing, he predicted that productivity is rising so quickly and technology is innovating so fast that people won't have to work nearly as much as they used to and everyone's gonna have 15 hour work weeks. And I cannot find a single job that will promise me a 15 hour work week, so what's going on? Yeah, yeah, in 1930, uh, in the SAS Economic Prospects for Our Grandchildren, uh, Keynes projected a 10 hour work week and in 100 years from 1930. So 2030 is right around the corner. Yeah. I don't think we're gonna see 10 hour work weeks. And what's interesting is that he, um, he proposed this um, by assuming that there would be a 2% annualized growth rate. Mm -hmm. Now, we've actually had a faster growth rate than that even. So Keynes wow. wasn't wrong about, about the growth in productivity. We've actually had a 2.2% growth rate. Um, so incomes have risen dramatically. Now, how, why hasn't that led to a life of leisure? I think there's a few theories for this. Number one is that maybe workers, may, maybe maybe individuals, you know, people, really have much more insatiable appetites than Keynes had imagined. So it's very hard to imagine what could people buy with 10 times the income. Like if, you know, like if I were to throw out this question to you, you know, imagine everyone in the world is making a million dollars a year. What would they do? Mm -hmm. You'd be like, well, I don't know, like that's so much money. What could you, how could you possibly spend that? You know, so they'll take it easy and go on vacations and, and you know, we can imagine that like they'll live a life of leisure, but it's also very hard for us to imagine what the world will look like in a hundred years. There will be new technologies, new products, new types of things we'll want to have. And I think I think part of the problem was just a failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. So so that that's that's one that's one potential answer to this. Another take that I think is true, but is a little, a little more of a, a controversial take, is that I think in some way we're kind of already there. That like even though people aren't working ten-hour work weeks, I do think we've seen an increase in leisure at work. So work is becoming a little more fun. I think the the there's a gray area between work and leisure, and I think that that is becoming grayer. Like, you know, people make friends at work, they socialize, they, they are also selecting into jobs that align with their values much more. That's a, that's a big trend. And, you know, that's probably because people want to do what they're passionate about, and it's just a fun way to spend their time. So I do think we're seeing people not optimizing for income in the same way. I think people, we're seeing people optimize for their values, their enjoyment, um, and just, you know, what they like. So basically, like, the reason why Keynes was wrong is not because of any mispredictions and what happened in the economy, but simply because people choose to not have 15-hour work weeks, or 10 to 15-hour work weeks. I think that's right. Yeah. There's also another theory that, like, people actually like working. Um, it, you know, it's a contributor to how we feel valued by society. Mm -hmm. Um it can be very depressing and discouraging to not feel like you are contributing to the world mm -hmm. in some way. And also just the act of doing work is just not as bad as it used to be. It's not like we're working in sweatshops. We're working with smart people. We're mm -hmm. learning things. We're, we're you know, getting to innovate. We're trying out new ideas. And a lot of work is pretty fun. 
I mean, you know, when I when I teach this class in the future of work, I have a great time. Mm -hmm. um, now I hope the administrators don't think I'll do it for free, <laughs> but uh, but the truth is, I, I probably I probably would do it for for less for less money. You know, it's it's something it's something that I'd probably want to do even if I didn't have to worry about money. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because I remember reading that every single and this is especially true for men that every single drop in the unemployment rate or every single increase in unemployment rate results in like an X number of suicides primarily among men and it shows how strongly tied your job is to your identity absolutely yeah yeah and it's interesting because also basically the same thing that people optimize to have jobs that they enjoy and they feel valued at is the same reason we're seeing this great resonation phenomenon is the same reason why Keynes was wrong is because it says something about this deeper identity that people have for themselves and how their job is tied to that. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I never really thought about these as connected, but I, I think you're right. You know, when, when we think about this growth in labor market power that's, that's resulted from labor market conditions now, that has not resulted in people, you know, working in jobs with, with higher salaries and lower hours. That's resulted in more work happening. Mm -hmm. and, but it's just the type of work that, that people enjoy more. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. I, I'm reading this book by Stephen Covey. It's called The Eighth Habit. Have you read it? No. Um, he has some pretty interesting writing. And the eighth book, or the eighth habit book, is basically about how as the labor force becomes more service-oriented, uh, business leaders need to understand that managing people isn't how to run a business, but empowering people to be leaders in their own right. As a monotonous task and automated, maybe the next business innovation people have to make is not treating people as, you know, an X number of how many hours can they put in for how many dollars per hour, but realizing that every single person just needs to be empowered. And that's the next labor transformation. Because a lot of people right now still always feel that they are being underutilized at the workforce, both in terms of like creativity, but also just in general. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, now that I'm, I'm, I'm running this business, Rebellia Labs, so much of my of my job as as an entrepreneur as an operator is thinking how do how do we get the most from our people you know the, the, that's that's the most valuable resource mm -hmm. and thinking you know who should do what who, you know um, like how do we how do we get the most from 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 our talent it's it's the biggest question I mean that that's everything um, so you know thinking about what people spend their time on how to improve that how to optimize that thinking about management. I mean, these are hugely important. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I want to say, like, the only thing I do and think about that really matters. Mm -hmm. At uh, Revelio Labs, what is the problem that you saw in the world, and what is the mission of the company for the world to fix it? Yeah, the problem is really unsophisticated labor markets. You know, I, I, I used to be a data scientist at a hedge fund, and... Um, and that time, you know, during that time, I got really into, you know, academic finance and thought it was really cool. And I still think it's really cool. But what, what really led me to lose my interest in that is that a lot of hard problems have been solved. Mm -hmm. It's a really mature field. And as a society, you know, and, and basically, the job of finance is to make sure capital is allocated efficiently. And we pretty much do that as a society. You know, capital is allocated pretty efficiently, and when it comes to labor, which is much bigger and more important than capital, 
you know, it's a much bigger part of the economy. I mean, you know, not to, not to, you know, cast them as, as competitors <laughs> in a way, but I mean, labor markets are hugely and uncontroversially very important, but labor markets are terribly unsophisticated. Firms are very reactive with what they need. I think firms don't have a good sense of the, the labor that they need and how to organize it. I think individuals also really are kind of going into their careers kind of blind without much information. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's really tragic. I, I'd love to see a world where labor markets are as sophisticated as capital markets. So I think there are lots of ways to do that and a lot of people working on it, but I think, um, I think what, what I'm trying to do with Revelio Labs is to create a ubiquitous source of workforce intelligence, much in the same way as like, you know, in finance, everyone's got a Bloomberg terminal mm -hmm. and they know they're looking at the same data. And, you know, I'd like to think that in the future, everyone who analyzes people will have a Revelio Labs terminal mm -hmm. or something like it, um, where they can use this information as an infrastructure in a way. And I hope that this will bring more sophistication and science to the most important market in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.